services for our dear brother, Brother Ponce Gibbs. Um, we will follow the program as it's printed. And Brother Gibbs was very specific in saying that um, we don't need to take all day. So he has structured everything as he has desired and we want to follow uh, his desires as best we can. So I'm going to ask that as your name appears that you would come on up front and whatever it is that you've been asked to do, if a time limit has been given, we could all talk all day about such a dear brother, but a time limit has been imposed, not by me, but it's been imposed, and we ask that if you really love and respect the moment, that you would respect the time as well. So uh, please be mindful of what you have been asked to do. Do that, and uh, we will proceed as follows. So after the selection, we'll have uh, the invocation, the reading of scriptures, and we'll follow from there. Thank you.
But God, we just truly thank you for him. Thank you for his life, his standing in life. Thank you to God that you allowed my eyes to witness one of the days that the church had its greatest stressful test in a courtroom. I saw this soldier stand strong and stand for righteousness. Thank you for his life. Thank you when young men like me needed a model, a role model, he was there to pour into us and to deposit the righteousness that was taught unto him. Thank you for him. Thank you to God for all that he meant, not only to this family and this church, but to this community and so many who love and respect him. And now, Lord, we ask as we invoke your presence and your name upon this service, fall fresh on this pastor today. Grant him to God the strength to preach the gospel, to send this soldier home to God with all the accolades of heaven that belong to you and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Amen. The brother Gibbs would say, that early is on time. And on time was late. My wife and I would talk about that. And I met a brother in the street the other day and we echoed the same sentiments about Brother Gibbs and and he said that Brother Gibbs were talked about when he was our training union teacher. You left that class feeling like you had been to a university. You had your pen, you had your pad, and Brother Gibbs made us smarter than what we were. We're going to miss our brother, but we shall see him again. The Old Testament scripture, Psalms 90, verses 1 through 10, it reads as follows. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we were brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring your years, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet their stand is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. It's the reading of our new te- our Old Testament, our New Testament scripture. It's John chapter 11, verses 21 through 26. The scripture reads as follows. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Amen. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word.
ask that as your name appears for remarks, would you please make your way forward and um, feel free to use either mic and they will move right along.
look at Psalm 34 that helped me to this difficult time. I will surely miss you, my sweet mother and uncle. I love you. She also selected a poem, and she could have been used to do it as well. My uncle. My uncle was a man who had smiles and brightened her days, who always made me feel good with his warm words of praise. And what's more, he knew what to do to make wishes come true. He was my uncle. My uncle was someone who always had good stories to tell, but just as importantly, he knew how to be a good listener as well. He was patient and kind, and the very best friend he could ever hope to find. He was more of a good man, and I'm proud to tell the world that Ponce Gibbs was my uncle. Thank you. 
talk. I can see that. The rest of us have been working all night with the gifts sitting back in the cut, like whenever you were doing it. And he always had his part. He was always ready, always prepared. And that was a lesson that we all learned from him. And we're going to listen, and we just want you to know that we love you. Yeah.
was leading Pastor Jones in this direction. We had Pastor Jones in plenty over in a conference. And it was such a man of God in that word and we just loved him and everything insisted and we saw him again in some other conferences. It just showed him how God works. How God worked and all that that we didn't know all of this was would come to fruition one day the way that it is. So I called up to that day and I said, Young kids, I said, I don't want to share something with you. And I said, uh, Pastor Jones, Ken Jones, God is leading his community, God is leading you in this way to, uh, you know, the pastor church, he has an interest in them. And he said to me, he said, uh, he said, let me sit down. Thank you. 
firmly on the foundation of Christian principle. He was a student of the word, a true worshiper, full of generosity, fulfilled his obligations to the church, and loved the brother. He came to membership on January 1st, 1975, and for the next 45 years, availed himself to the life and leadership of the church's ministries, namely deacon, trustee, uh, teacher, men's ministry, choir, Sunday school, Bible school, Bible studies, and training. We therefore do and will cherish the fellowship enjoyed with Brother Gibbs over the years and thank God for his gifts and services in this local assembly. Our fond memory of, of him speaks to his love of Christ. His passion for the Word of God and his deep devotion to his family and his church. He is sad to miss from among us, but is at peace and rest in the presence of our eternal Father. He is further resolved that you dare to share back his church, offer our continued prayers to the family, and will avail ourselves to your service in whatever capacity we are able. We finally resolve that God is to be glorified in all things, seasons, and situations, even including when we go through the valley and the shadow of death. Our confidence in confidence is He is with us. His promises will not fail, and His purposes are never frustrated. For we know that in this earthly house, this church is destroyed. We are a building of God. We are a house not made of hands, eternal in the heaven. This resolution is ordered by the pastor and officers of the Dead Missionary Baptist Church, a copy of which shall be given to the family and one retained in the files of the Dead Missionary Baptist Church. Come listen to this. Reverend Kenneth R. Jones, Pastor, Celia M. Brad, Secretary. We God bless
first uh, to Sister Gibbs and Janice and Ronald and Reggie and Jordan. Great, great to see you. Our hearts go out to you and um, on behalf of the church we extend our deepest condolences and sympathies in um, obviously a very difficult moment. Uh, thank you Sister Grant for reminding us that we've, we've reached a point where and I think I find it personally insulting when you come to a funeral and people say you ought not be sad he's in a better place sure he's in a better place but God allows us room to cry and the greatest insult to have something that you've loved is to lose it and not feel a sting by the loss God is not that kind of a God we'll have time for eternal joy and fellowship when we see him but in the moment we suffer the loss and so we not only give you room to sorrow but understand grief and people will say well you'll get over grief you don't get over you learn to live with because you live with the loss uh, I want to do two things. I want to render a eulogy, which is to speak well of. And then, as Brother Gibbs would have it, he would not have it any other way. He would want me to preach, because that's my assignment. And so, before the eulogy, before the sermon, I want to give a eulogy. The measure and the model of a man to me is my father. And I was blessed to have a, a wonderful father that, that taught me what it means to be a man. And one of the things that I appreciated about Brother Gibbs is that he was, he was cut from that same cloth in that he was tough but tender. He, his word meant something. And one of the things that I learned from, again, directly or indirectly from my father, that one of the things that makes us men as we are supposed to be is that your word matters. And you can confront your pain and let it be pain. You confront your, your weaknesses and acknowledge them as weaknesses. And you have your confrontations and you move on. We, we're not supposed to hold grudges. And Brother Gibbs taught me that. And I, So when I encountered him, that was such a refreshment because I started pastoring before, shortly before I turned 25 years old, which meant I was surrounded by women in church. And the men that have been in church oftentimes have been done a disservice, especially by black churches, because we tend to nurture either the old Adam so that we respond to situations in the flesh or we feminize what it means to be a man. So one of the things I had to learn early on, and Brother Gibbs was a model of this, how do I lead men and have the respect of even the elder men 
but at the same time make myself available because I was too young to know much other than what my, my calling was. So I needed the strength of, of older men and the counsel. One of the things I discovered is that many times in our churches, older doesn't mean wise. <laughs> so you learn to glean from wisdom when you find it. And I appreciate Brother Gibbs because he had wisdom. Here's what I gleaned from Brother, Brother Gibbs. Brother Gibbs was never too old to learn. In fact, uh, we started a series of Tuesday night classes a few years back, and it was for the purpose, it was for men. It was to help us get a better understanding of what the gospel is. And from day one, Brother Gibbs was present, and he was always absorbing information, and it wasn't just so that he could have information. But over the years, he started to slow down. And in our last session, he called me and he says, Pastor, I'm, I'm not going to continue. I'm not going to be a part of the Tuesday night class this year. I said, Brother Gibbs, why not? And he says, well, I'm, 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 not able to, I'm, I'm not able to get around like I did. And Floria's having to drop me off. And the brothers have made themselves available, but I don't want to put them out of their way. And I listened to them, and I let them go. I says, okay, Brother Gibbs, I appreciate that. And this has never been by compulsion. You show up because you want to show up. But I want to tell you as your pastor, you're wrong. The reason that you've given me... You're wrong. I said, these brothers help you because they love you. I said, Brother Gibbs, that is, that is the height of, of selfishness and the height of pride to be willing to give, 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 but not be able to receive. I said, that's, that's your old nature. That's, that's pride. I said, now you, you do what you want. But if that's the reason that you're giving, then you are, you are disallowing these brothers to show their love. And if you're not receiving because you don't want to, to receive help, then you're wrong for that. Because if I were to come to you, Brother Gibbs, and I were to tell you that someone needed a ride and you had the ability to give them a ride, you'd give them a ride. So you don't have the right to give and not receive. And he said, Brother, he says, Pastor, I thank you for that. I thank you for that. And the next week, I look, I, I come to the church, and, and, and Brother Grant had pulled in front of the church, and there's Brother Gibbs. And when it was time to go home, it was between Lewis or Theo, any of these brothers was right there. And Brother Gibbs, when I, when I walked in, he just said, thank you, Pastor. One other thing, and I'll mention this, and it's because it just always stands out. Like I said, he, this is a brother who is growing in his understanding of the gospel. We, we delineated the doctrine of justification. And the doctrine of justification basically says that we are saved by God's grace in Christ, which we receive through faith and not by our own works. So as we were reasoning through it, I made the point, I said, you know, too often when we go to funerals, people are, are always talking about, let the works I've done speak for me. I said, that's the last thing that you want to speak for you when you stand before the throne of God is your works. Yeah. 
And then I says, and then we, we, we reinforce that, that horrible doctrine by people saying, I'm sending up timber. And if we're sending up timber, then what did Jesus say when he, when he departed? I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. So if we're sending up timber, it's unnecessary. Yeah. The Gibbs grasped that and he put it together and every now and then he would say, now pastor, I just was at a funeral yesterday and I heard them say, I, 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 that, that people say, let my work speak for me? Do they not get it? I, I, I know I'm not the smartest person, but maybe, maybe I'm reading a different Bible. Why are they saying this? Why are they continuing in this? And he would week in and week out. Sometimes in Sunday school he'd find a way to insert it. Am I missing something? Let the works that I've done speak for me? Pastor, I, I, I thank you that I understand that my works don't speak for me. And so the scriptures tell us in Hebrews 13 that you are to submit to those that God has placed over you because they will have to give an account for your soul that they may do it with joy. I don't know how that's going to play out, but I know that I believe God's word that if I have to give an account for pastoring this brother, my only report is going to be thank you, Lord, for the privilege of serving you by ministering to this sheep who loved your word and your people and heard your voice and responded by trusting your grace. Thank you for the privilege of serving you by serving this brother. Because it has been a privilege. Our scripture is Philippians 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And so I just want to take a few moments to unpack this statement. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I agree with James Boyce. When he says this about this passage, that Philippians 1.21 is a text that cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the heart of Christianity. If you were to summarize what the Christian faith and the Christian life is, it comes down to these 12 words. For me to live is Christ, and to 
die is gain. It's only 12 words, but it's the most apt summary of the Christian faith and Christian hope. What I want to do in broad terms is look is, is put it under three broad categories in dissecting, if you would, this brief but yet condensed and compact statement. In the first place, to say, to make that statement, to say for me to live is Christ, is itself a statement of faith that is born out of conviction. So the, the statement itself, for me to live is Christ, is a statement of faith that is born out of conviction. Now, of course, what we're doing is fencing this off. This doesn't apply to everyone. This applies to everyone who professes faith in Christ. And this statement is, it, this, this expression, for me to live, is a statement of faith, trust that is born out of conviction and here's what I mean by conviction in the first place to be able to make that statement one must be under the conviction that you are a sinner under the just condemnation of God which means you are unable to meet the standard of God's holy law no one can say that for me to live as Christ without understanding their own inability to meet the law's holy demands. And not only are you acknowledging a conviction that you're unable to meet God's unchanging law, but it is to acknowledge that the condemnation that is over you is a just condemnation. The way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, he says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so to be able to make the statement for me to live as Christ is to understand and be convicted by the fact that that includes you. But then Paul also says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Yes, sir. And so therefore, not only are you convicted by the fact that you have failed to meet God's holy law, but it also means to recognize that you're condemned. Yeah. To say that for me to live is Christ. It's a statement of faith that is born out of the conviction that you are a condemned sinner. But also, to be able to say for me to live as Christ, you also must be under the conviction that Jesus of Nazareth really lived. That he was born in Bethlehem. And not only did he live, but he is the eternal Son of God. And he became flesh. And in that flesh, he kept God's law in thought, word, and deed. And you must be under the conviction that in that flesh, he offered up his life to bear the condemnation that should have been yours. 
is to be convinced that not only did he die, live for your righteousness, and die for your sins, but that he was physically buried. And on the third day, he rose again for your justification. And after 40 days, he ascended into the heavens where he is seated at the right hand of the Father to present himself to the Father on your behalf. So to say, for me to live is Christ, is a statement that is a statement of faith that is born out of conviction. Conviction that you are a condemned sinner and your only hope of salvation is Christ. Now what Paul says here is really a condensed form of what he says in greater detail also in this letter. And, and, and he brings it all together, the, the, the points of conviction that are necessary in order to be a Christian. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, the apostle writes this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, uh, for His sake, I have suffered the loss of all of these things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is of the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, which is the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So to say for me to live is Christ is a statement of uh, a statement of faith that is brought uh, it, it, it is born out of conviction that I'm a sinner and I can't cleanse myself and it is born out of the conviction that the eternal son of God took on human flesh and he didn't show me the way he was the way he didn't instruct me on how to become righteous first and foremost he became righteousness for me so therefore to say for me to live is Christ is a statement that a faith that is born out of the conviction of my utter unworthiness and the complete acceptance that God has of me because of Christ. But here's the second category. To say for me to live as Christ is the expression of faith in a two-dimensional transcendent truth. To say for me to live as Christ is, is itself the expression of faith 
in a two-dimensional, transcendent truth. Now let me explain the terms. Two dimensions. The two dimensions that this statement embraces is that which is heavenly. That's one dimension. And then the earthly dimension. Now here's the truth that is, here's what we mean by transcendent. These, this two dimensional truth goes beyond our natural perception to connect us to what the Bible says in both of these realms. Let me explain it this way. On the one hand, to say for me to live as Christ is to recognize that even as I exist on planet earth, even as I live in a failing and flawed body, according to the word of God, right now, I have entered behind the veil in the holy of holies in the person of my forerunner. But here's the way Paul expresses it in Ephesians. Right now, we who have faith in Christ are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's important for us to know that as we journey here, that even though we are right now in difficult circumstances by all that we see, to say for me to live is Christ is to acknowledge that, that really in the eyes of God, I'm not going to heaven only, I am going, but right now I am there. Yeah. You see, brothers and sisters, this is what Paul says in Colossians. That our lives are hidden in Christ. We are seated with Him. So, so to say for me to live is Christ is to recognize that no matter where I am on planet earth, I am also in the presence of God, in the person of Christ. But, but that's, the, that's the earthly dimension. That's, that's the heavenly dimension. of the, that, that the, say, To say that for me to live in Christ, it connects me to a truth that reminds me that heaven and hell may fade away. Whatever else is going on, I am right now. I'm not trying to get in. That's what Brother Gibbs understood. That's why he said, I ain't sending up any timber. God sent down His Son. Yeah. So we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But on the other hand, to say for me to live is Christ is to express what one of my favorite preachers growing up used to say, to express the with usness of Christ in our temporal and earthly experiences. You see, to say for me to live is, with, is, is Christ is to acknowledge that I am right now seated in heavenly places in Him. Yeah. But it also reminds me that in my earthly and temporal experiences, the resurrected Jesus is with us. Isn't that what he tells his disciples after his resurrection, after the Great Commission? And he says, and lo, I am with you, even until the end of the world. So to say that to, for me to live as Christ is to recognize that I'm seated with Him in the exalted heavenly places right now by faith. 
but it is also to acknowledge that right now he who is exalted before the Father is with me in our struggles. John chapter 10, Jesus makes the declaration that I am the good shepherd. And all of those shepherd statements of Jesus is actually summed up for us in David's great psalm of the good shepherd in Psalms 23. And here, if that is true, what David says then is true for us that we can never lose sight of. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. To say for me to live is Christ is to express our union with Him as He, even in His exalted state. But it is also to express His union with us in our lowest points. Brothers and sisters, the with us-ness of Christ is what Jesus demonstrates in the story of the, of the, the hundred sheep. And the, the hundred sheep were, were, were all together and one went astray. And the good shepherd, Jesus, went out and got the good shepherd, the lost sheep, and brought him home. Jesus tells in that same trilogy of parables a story of, of, of a son who had everything and then gave it up and went away. And the father waited for him to come home. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is with us. I think of Gideon when the Lord called upon Gideon, this mighty man of valor. Gideon didn't see himself that way. He's he's threshing out the wine, uh, the wine in, in you know, the wine in the wine press, and and he's he's hiding from the enemy. And and the and the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and told him that you mighty man of God, the Lord is with you. You know what Gideon says? Then where are the miracles? He says, if if, if the Lord is with us, then where are the miracles? Brothers and sisters, here's what it means to say that for me to live is Christ. is to understand that the greatest miracle is the incarnation. And he who was incarnate in the flesh came in our place. And even right now, as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, we are with him, but he is with us. And you say, well, where is he then? Where's my miracle? And so when he feeds us from the table, he reminds us he's, he's the shepherd feeding us. When he gives us faithful ministers of the gospel who tell us the sin, that our sins are forgiven in Christ, he's with us when he connects us to one another in the body of Christ. That is him with us. So that we are never alone. 
And with usness of Christ means that when we struggle, when we fail, when we fall, He is with us. When we hurt, He is with us. And when a brother or sister lends a hand of mercy, when a fortuitous set of circumstances leads you into a place when you were in darkness and all of a sudden there's light, that means He is with us. He takes the sting out of death. He takes all of the, the, the pain of it. He, he anesthetizes the pain. So even as our bodies are failing, we're not just waiting to get home. We are certified as being at home. To say for me to live as Christ is to recognize that I am seated with Him. Yes, sir. And He stands with me. It is to recognize that even as we share in the privileges of His exalted state, He condescends to be with us in our trials and our struggles. To say for me to live is Christ is a statement of faith that is born out of conviction and it expresses a faith in a two-dimensional transcendent truth that right now I'm seated in heavenly places and right now the Savior is with me. That brings me to the backside of this statement. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, it's a very compact statement, but in it you'll find everything that, that is part of the Christian faith. And so this backside of it, and to die is gain. The question is, what therefore is the Christian gain in death? Because, of course, the other side of this is that for Christians to die, it is gain. But it is also gain for unbelievers. They just gain something differently. But if to, for us to die is gain, I think we can divide it along two lines. What is it that we gain? On the one hand, we gain intermediate benefits that are enjoyed by all of the saints who die before the second coming of Christ. In other words, it, there, there is a place, there, there's something that has yet to be delivered, but there is something that is presently experienced and enjoyed by all of the saints that have gone before the second coming of Christ, and it will reach its final end. So in a sense, there is a degree of glory that's experienced by those who have died in the Lord before the Lord returns. But then there are also eternal consummation benefits that are shared by all of the saints from all eternity. And these things are those that we all have in common. So what I want to do is begin, because we're not there yet, and we want to talk really about the about what, what those who die in the intermediate state, what they receive. But let's first just summarize along three lines what will be all of our to benefit so that when we die
life, it is gained, and I'm talking in the eternal consummated sense. Number one, what we will gain in death in its consummation is an incorruptible body. All of us are going to get that. Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, 5 says that when this earthly tabernacle of a tent is dissolved, we have another building not made with hands but eternal in the heavens and that's for everyone. Everyone who's in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says when this mortal shall put off or, or this mortality or this, this mortality will take off, will take off in mortality and put off immortality. We'll take off that which is corruptible and put on that which is incorruptible. That's not that's not for special saints. That's for all saints. All of us will inherit a body that is incorruptible and immortal and incapable of failure or flaw. But secondly, we will all enjoy a renewed earth. Amen. We, God is going to purge the earth because in the beginning He created the earth for the habitat of His image bearers and now that we have fallen and it's been overthrown, overgrown with weeds, He hasn't changed His mind. He's not going to blow up the earth and give us someplace else. No, He's going to clean up the earth. We got a display of that with, with, with Sodom and Gomorrah. We got a display of that with the flood, that He will purge the earth. And so what all of us will inherit is a purged, cleansed earth. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the whole creation is groaning like a woman in labor, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. It's interesting to look at the bookends of the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of the book of Revelation and the descriptions there. So what is heaven? Heaven is not floating on clouds and heaven is not us just being disembodied for all eternity. Heaven is an earth without sin, without stain, without soil, without suffering, without sorrow, and nothing but fellowship between creature and creator. It's an earth. Jehovah's Witness got that right. That it's a new earth. It's an earth that is purged from all that soils it, all that stains it, all of the pollution of the fallen human being that has corrupted the created order will be reversed. And that's we all gain that. But thirdly, here's what we also gain. All of us gain unbroken fellowship with all of the saints as we bask in the light of the Lamb that saved us. The way it's described in Revelation is that that the earth, that that the that, that heaven comes down into the earth, and and here's what we see: that there is no need for a sun. Even though it will be there. There is no need for the moon. Even though it will be there. 
Because the glory of the Son, S-O-N, will be the light of His people. That's what's, that's, that's consummation. I just want to touch briefly on three things that we gain by death in the intermediate state. Three things that right now Brother Gibbs could testify to. Number one, it means what we gain is freedom from a body that's wearing down. I've had the privilege of serving here for 10 years. My own body is breaking down. And I've seen Brother Gibbs grow weak. And I've seen him grow weary. And he's now free from the body that is wearing down. Now that doesn't mean, and, and Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians 5 when he talks about the new bodies, not that we want to be disembodied. We just don't want the weight of one that's corrupt. And what Brother Gibbs is free from, what he has gained right now, this freedom from a body. And Janice was telling me how difficult it was for him to eat pureed. Well, he didn't really receive the pureed food. He's free from a body that requires multiple pills. He has gained freedom from a body that goes only in one direction, and that's down. That's what we're looking at before us is a body. And what God has done has He has called the soul of His servant to a state where He is no longer encumbered by a body. That doesn't mean that's what He will be forever. No, we all have bodies waiting for us. But He has to wait before He puts His on until we put all of ours on. Nobody gets a sneak preview. Here's the second thing. What he has gained is not only freedom from a body that is weighing him down or that is painful, but he has also gained freedom from temptation and sin. Brother Gibbs will be tempted no more. He is free. He has gained freedom from having to deal with the sins of others. He's gained that right now. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And third and finally, what Brother Gibbs has gained even as we speak. He's gained a better, he's gained the bliss, I should say, of a fuller, unbroken gaze into the glory of the Father through the face of the Son. That's what writer, the writer of Hebrews puts it. That the effulgent glory of the Father is reflected in the Son. That's the way Paul expresses it in 2 Corinthians that, that he who spoke in the beginning has now spoke through the gospel that through the Son we are able to receive the glory of the Father.
Father, which is reflected in the face of the Son. Now we will have lasting and long memories of Brother Gibbs. And some are even going to be convinced, and I know what you mean by it, I hope I know what you mean by it. Some will even say, well, he's with us and he's looking... No, here's what... And, and I know, I hate to burst our bubbles. He loved all of us and we will enjoy him for all eternity. But trust me, right now, you are the least thing on his mind. Right now... Jesus that he trusted the righteousness that he looked to to cover him he's in the presence of the Lamb of God without distractions without confusion without compromise and yes, I know we all want to think, well, he's no, he is. And look, when you get there, you'll be the same way. When we are in the presence of the Son, it's not that nothing else matters, but everything else makes better sense. And what he has gained. What he's lost is pain. What he has gained is a better glimpse of the glory that is the grace of God in the person of his Son. The story is told about Michelangelo and he painted the... Last Supper in the Sistine Chapel. And someone beheld the painting. And they looked at it and said, Oh my goodness, look at the details of the chalice that's held by our Lord. Look at the details of that chalice. It's so beautiful. Michelangelo was said to have taken a bucket of paint and threw it on the painting. And they couldn't understand what would make you do such a thing. And the story goes that he says anything that detracts attention from my Savior is not worth standing. Brother Gibbs doesn't have a feeding schedule or a sleeping schedule or doctor's appointment or family affairs or church business that keeps him from seeing the beauty and the splendor of the one who saved him. Yes, sir. Paul says that eventually our faith will give way to sight. Brother Gibbs has gained better sight of the Savior. Yes, sir. And for that, he is blessed. Thank you, Lord. For me to live is Christ. But to die 
is gain. Yes, sir. And even as we rejoice in the life that he lived in the knowledge of Christ, we rejoice even more in what his death has gained him. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. God and our Father, we come to you. Thank you, Lord. In the blessed name of our Savior. You have granted us your grace whereby we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. And in that kingdom you have connected us to those through whom your grace has been reflected. We thank you for saving grace. And we thank you for sweet fellowship with fellow pilgrims who have trusted you as we do and who have been loved by you and through whom your love has been reflected and given to us. Thank you for this brother. We pray your mercies upon his family. And we thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.